Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, will help thee, yea, will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, ready to focus on the Word, get our minds off of uh, the weather and other things that tend to distract us, things that may be coming up this week, things that may have happened this last week or even this morning that put our attention somewhere else other than on the Word of God. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, nine if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this opportunity to gather together this morning to fellowship around the teaching of your word. We thank you for the freedom that we have in this nation that we can so gather, the freedom that we have to to live our lives under our own responsibility, the freedom we have to glorify you. Father, we pray for our nation at this time as we face continued and increasing threats of terrorism, as we face the real potential of war in Iraq. Father, we pray that you would guide and direct our president, those who advise him. We pray for the leaders in various communities who are in charge of security, that you would give them wisdom, that they would be uh, mindful of things that are happening around them that may not be uh, in the norm, that they might be able to uh, identify and prevent any acts of terrorism. Father, we pray that you would protect this nation because we know that Ultimately, it is your protection and not anything that we do that secures our borders. Father, we also pray for men in this congregation, men who are uh, in the extended congregation in the Tate ministry who are serving overseas, who who will be serving overseas, those who have been mobilized. We pray that they might be an effective witness for you, that they might be models and exemplars of the use of the faith rest drill, that they might be relaxed as they trust in you. We pray for their families, that you would give them a sense of uh, security, that they might be strong in the promise of your word, that they might relax knowing that that their family members, their loved ones are uh, under your protection and that ultimately everything works according to your plan. Father, we pray for us as a congregation. We pray that we might continue to be steadfast in our Uh, devotion, our commitment, our dedication to the study of your word, that we might not make this simply an academic exercise of learning facts about scripture, but that we might be applying these things in a regular and consistent manner in our own lives. We pray that you guide and direct us and challenge us as we study your word this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, I remind you of the context where we're studying here from 1 Corinthians 8 through 1 Corinthians 11. We're dealing with the general subject of <coughs> doubtful things. That is, how do you make decisions in areas where the Word of God does not directly give guidance, where the Word of God is uh, absent, where you have areas where you may have cultural problems, cultural taboos, uh, self-righteous taboos, other areas where there are practices that we know have no significance, such as the situation in Corinth of eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. As Paul stated in 1 Corinthians 8.4, we know that an idol is nothing. There is no other God but one. Yet, nevertheless, there was this religious baggage that went with eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And as a result, there were those who were untaught and who had not learned the issues correctly yet. They were young believers. They were weak in their conscience. And so Paul says, for the sake of their conscience... For the sake of not doing harm to this weaker brother, then it is necessary to apply the law of love and not to engage in certain practices. Now, one of the things that we need to note here is this does, this may or may not include a, a sort of an across-the-board rejection of a certain practice. It may involve just not doing something at a particular time when that individual is present, and it may be a lifetime decision, or it may simply be a decision that one makes depending on the situation. This is what we see in the example that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But the argument, the basic point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 8 is one of the most significant and profound arguments in Scripture and really has, as I stated last time, has really had a profound impact on the way Christians since the Reformation and specifically in this nation understood the significance of conscience. For what Paul's argument is here is that no authority, not even the highest authority in the church, which was himself, the highest authority, no one had the right or authority to force someone to violate their conscience. That even if their conscience is wrong, even if they have uh, false norms and standards, even if the norms and standards are contrary to Scripture, nevertheless, no one, not even the Apostle Paul himself, had the right to force that person to do anything to violate their conscience, because the very act of violation of conscience was a sin. Now, what's significant about that is that when you apply that to liberty, to the understanding of freedom in a national entity, then it, you recognize that not even the government has the right to force anyone to violate their conscience. And that is a principle that underlies all of the freedoms that are instantiated in the Bill of Rights. So it is this principle as it was first understood by English Puritans in the 16th and 17th century and later as it was developed in the political philosophies of people like John Locke who was born and raised in a Puritan home and others, and as it sort of trickled down to impact the thinking of, of many of the founding fathers of this nation, you have this principle of the right of freedom of conscience. Now, the Corinthian reaction uh, 
is typical of arrogance, but it's also typical of the human viewpoint kind of thinking that characterized Greek culture and that often characterizes our culture. We're not that different from the Greeks. We're not that removed from the kind of human viewpoint that characterized Greco-Roman culture. In fact, we are, in many ways, the ideological heirs, and that it means that we're also the heirs of the cosmic thinking, the same basic, uh, many of the basic concepts of the cosmic worldview at that time are still pre- present in our human viewpoint today. But the Corinthian arrogant reaction is one that probably has been stated by most of us at one time or another, and that is, uh, do you mean, they would say, that we, we Corinthians who have all this knowledge, we have been trained, you've taught us, we know that these idols aren't real, we have all this knowledge, that we have to give up our rights. We have legitimate rights to eat this meat that's been sacrificed to idols. After all, that doesn't mean anything. We know that, you know that, and this is our right to eat good steak. And yet we have to give this up just because there's this wimpy little weenie believer over here who doesn't understand the truth yet, and he just has a weak conscience, and uh, he's ill-informed, he hasn't learned enough doctrine yet, that we have to give up our rights, we have to give up our right to a good stake just because of this weak believer. Why don't we just straighten him out instead of having to give up our rights? And that is typical human viewpoint in Greek culture. It was a, a standard in Greek culture was the assertion of one's own rights or privileges. The opposite attitude of this was expressed in a Greek word that's used in the scriptures, and it looks like this in Greek. It is tapai na fra sune. And it comes from the Greek noun. The pinos. Now I'll transliterate this in just a minute. The first word is spelled T-A-P-E-I-N-O-P-H-R-O-S-U-N-E. Long E, almost like an A. And the basic noun is tapinos. T-A-P-E-I-N-O-S. Now the idea here is the idea of being low of having little esteem, and it originally related to someone's social status, that they were on the lowest rung in in society. They were at the very bottom, and it came to eventually have the idea of humility, not asserting one's own position or one's own rights. In contrast to this, and, and this was considered a negative value in Greek culture. This is almost an, uh, an insulting word if someone is tapinos, if they have this character. They are just a low person. They're, a, they're, they're like a slave. They're like a servant. They're a nobody. And uh, what you were to emphasize was your own, uh, your own qualities, your own good qualities, your own success, your own achievements. And if, you have, if you're not blowing your own horn, then, then who will? So the idea of being humble is uh, uh, someone who does not assert their own rights, their own legitimate rights, their own privileges, and the idea in Greek culture was that you should assert yourself. It sort of reminds us of modern assertiveness training. Anyhow, this word is used in a very crucial passage in Philippians chapter 2, 
verses 5 through 10, where we have the emphasis on Jesus Christ, who is to pinephrosune. We are to be humble as Jesus Christ is humble, demonstrating that attitude that he did not assert his own rights and privileges as deity to stay in heaven, to exercise his position as God, but nevertheless he gave that up. He willingly restricted the independent use of his attributes and took on the form of a servant, became a servant, became a human being in order to go to the cross. So he was willing to sacrifice, lay aside his own legitimate rights, privileges, and position in order to serve mankind. So this is the idea, even though this word and the concept of humility is not mentioned in 1 Corinthians 9, this is exactly what the issue is. Paul is brilliant in the way he reacts to the or heads off the Corinthian reaction after he's gone through chapter eight and he says that uh, you should limit your freedom if it's going to cause any other believer to uh, stumble in his spiritual life, to cause him harm in his spiritual life, to cause him to uh, not only get out of fellowship but stay out of fellowship, to go into carnality then you should be willing out of love for that other, that weaker brother to give that up. And, of course, the Corinthian reaction would be, wait a minute, I'm not going to do that. Why should I give anything up? Why don't we just straighten this guy out? And Paul says, well, yes, we could do that, but but let's uh, let's think about this a minute. And in a very almost emotional passage, he, he really lays down the law to the Corinthians, and he turns the table on them in a brilliant manner because what he does in the next chapter is to put the Corinthians in the place of the weaker brother and puts himself in the position of the stronger believer who has given up certain rights, privileges, and certain, uh, certain things that he is due for their sake because they weren't strong enough to handle the situation. So he lays this out in a very brilliant way. Now, structurally, Paul begins with four rhetorical questions in verse 1. He lays down the principle in the next two verses, verses 2 and 3, and then starting in verse 4, he begins to lay down the issue again, and here he uses 12 rhetorical questions. So you can see that the idea of asking a question one question after another to emphasize his point is the is the idea through this section, and he does it in a very quick manner. These are short, brief, staccato questions. You can see that Paul is almost is angry. He's incensed at at their reaction, at their arrogance, at their self-centeredness, and he just uh, just lays them out through the skill of his argumentation. So let's begin by looking at the first looking at the first verse. Verse 1 he says, "Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord?" Now, in this verse, it seems at first glance that what Paul is trying to do is establish his credentials as an apostle. Although his apostolic authority has clearly been challenged by the Corinthians and is challenged again and as an issue in 2 Corinthians as well, that's not exactly what Paul is doing in this verse, although that underlies uh, and is part of the background to the verse. What he is doing in verse 1 is laying the foundation for what he is going to say by reminding them that he is an apostle. 
that as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ in the church age, he has just as much freedom as they do. He has just as many rights as they do. He has just as much liberty in Christ as they do. And if that is true, then he's going to make his argument. So he is laying the foundation for his position in verse 1, and that is to remind them that as an apostle he has every right, every privilege, every authority that any other believer has, and if that's true, then he is going to have certain other things that are due him that the Corinthians completely ignored and were not even sensitive to, and he didn't even remind them of that because of their weaker brother status. So that's the thrust of the argument. So he begins by reminding them of his uh, apostleship, and he reminds them, uh, and as such, we should be reminded of the qualifications for an apostle. Remember, an apostle was a spiritual gift given to a few individuals, and it was related to laying the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20. The foundation of the church is apostles and prophets. This was a gift that was limited to the church age, and I believe it was limited to only uh, 12 individuals in the church age. The 11 original disciples and apostles, that is minus Judas Iscariot and minus Matthias in in, uh, Acts chapter 1, plus the apostle Paul. First of all, the qualifications for apostle meant that they were appointed by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12:8 through 11, it is a spiritual gift. As a spiritual gift, by definition, it is given at, under the sovereignty of God the Holy Spirit to the individual at the, either the moment of salvation or, as it happened in Acts chapter 2, at the beginning of the church age. They're appointed by the Holy Spirit, not by men. In Galatians chapter 1, uh, where Paul is also dealing with his uh, apostolic apostolic authority and the challenge to his apostolic authority by the Galatians, he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, that is, not from the ultimate source of men, nor through man, nor through any human agency. In other words, you cannot receive the gift of apostle through a human agent, agent or agency, and therefore when Peter in his overblown enthusiasm in Acts chapter 1, decided that they needed to uh, uh, find a replacement for Judas Iscariot, held a little, got, got all the believers together, and there's the episode with the 120 in the upper room. And they chose lots to see who would replace Judas. So you have a body of men basically determining who has a spiritual gift. Now, one argument against that that I have heard is that, well, the Holy Spirit refers to them as the twelve later on in Acts 3, Acts 4, when this is uh, before Paul is saved, so the Holy Spirit wouldn't be making a mistake. He can count. If Matthias is included in the number, then you'd have twelve. If Matthias is not included in the number, then you would only have eleven. However, I will give you, in case you run into that, I will give you the counter-argument to that, and that's from this very epistle in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in verse 
verse 5, talking about the resurrection, that Christ, verse 4, that he was buried, he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. Now, that's talking about Jesus' resurrection appearances between the resurrection, by, by then Judas is dead, he's committed suicide, and his ascension, which occurs ten days before Pentecost, and at least two or three days before uh, Peter gets his idea to pick a new, new uh, apostle and pick Matthias. But what does Paul say? Paul calls them the twelve. He says he appeared to the twelve during this period when there's only eleven. Now, what's the matter? Can't Paul count? No. See, what's happened is the, the disciples had become known as the twelve. That was sort of a catch term for the, for the disciples, and that was the name of the group. They called them the Twelve. Well, they called them the Twelve for three years, and even when they lost one, they still called them the Twelve. So when the, they're referred to as the Twelve in Acts 3 and Acts 4, it is not a term that recognizes the legitimacy of Matthias, because the term the twelve is also used when there's only eleven. So obviously it's not a, a technical term that you can rely on to indicate whether or not Matthias had been actually accepted uh, by God the Holy Spirit as an apostle. An apostle was appointed by God the Holy Spirit as a spiritual gift. Second, an apostle was an eyewitness of the resurrection or had seen the resurrected Christ. This is um, evidenced in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 8 through 9, and in Acts 1.22. Peter got that right. He was looking for someone who, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. So that was part of the function of an apostle, was to be a legal witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is someone who has seen and is an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. So that means that there's nobody today who is an apostle. There's no one today who is an apostle, and every now and then you run into somebody, or if you're channel surfing on the uh, cable or satellite network, you're going to run into somebody who's Apostle so-and-so at some church, and you know right away that they don't have a clue about the Bible, and you need to just move right on past them. There is no such thing as an apostle today. The term apostle does not mean a missionary. That is not the concept. It is not a missionary. The third qualification for an apostle was that they were commissioned as an apostle directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is seen in uh, Paul's reference here in verse 1, Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? It emphasizes the fact that he has, he has seen Christ and uh, is a witness of the resurrection, but also that he was commissioned by Jesus Christ in, uh, when Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Now, the Greek word for apostle is the word apostolos. A-P-O-S-T-O-L-O-S. And it means someone who is commissioned 
someone who is appointed, someone who has been delegated a specific task and authority to fulfill that task. And the important thing is to identify who does the commissioning and the task to which they are commissioned, because there are some other individuals in the New Testament to to whom the word apostle is applied. But these are not apostles in the same sense that James and John and Paul were apostles. This is a secondary sense because the apostles, that is the twelve, were all commissioned by Jesus Christ, and they receive a spiritual gift of apostle. But others, such as Barnabas, Junius, and there's about three or four others that are mentioned, are commissioned by a local church to a particular task, usually uh, in the realm of uh, what we would call today missions. They were sent out and commissioned to take the gospel to a particular area. So this is apostle in a non-technical sense, and what we're talking about here is the gift of apostle, capital A, in a in a technical sense. And those apostles were also qualified, or they, they were given credentials of signs and wonders. This is the fourth uh, qualification. They were given miraculous powers, Acts 5, 15, uh, Acts 16, 16 to 18, and 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Now, the 2 Corinthians 12, 12 passage is an important one because there Paul is writing the same congregation we have here in 1 Corinthians, and he reminds them that the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. And that is important as background for understanding uh, the second verse here. So here we have Paul, the greatest of all apostles, the greatest theologian of all time, uh, laying down this reminder to the Corinthians. He says, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? And the way this is constructed in the Greek, it assumes a yes answer. Am I not an apostle? Yes, of course. Am I not free? Certainly. You're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has freedom. This isn't just freedom from the law. This is freedom to serve Christ. Is it not for freedom that Christ has set us free from the sin nature? and freedom, freedom to serve Him and to exercise our volition in whatever way we think is right in order to glorify Him that is within the bounds of scriptural mandates and prohibitions. Paul says, Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Of course, everyone knew his testimony, how the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus and in that blinding flash of light. And the Lord commissioned him and he was blinded until he was healed by Ananias when he went into Damascus. And then he says, Are you not my work in the Lord? So the first three questions focus on knowledge that is common to every believer and knowledge that they had from the time that Paul was in their midst. Then he says, Are you not my work in the Lord? Just think about what was accomplished by me in your midst during the time that I was with you, from the time I first came, and we were at the at the uh, in the in the synagogue, and then we met at the school of Tychicus, and then you saw those whom I baptized, and there were others who were baptized, whom Paul, of course, did not baptize, according to First Corinthians one, 
and there were those that were saved directly as a result of Paul's ministry, and he's reminding them of this. This is empirical evidence of his apostolic authority. And then in verse 2 says, he says, If, and the idea here would be even if, for the sake of argument, even if I am not an apostle to others, even if others would not necessarily recognize my, my apostleship, he says, yet doubtless I am to you, yet without a doubt I am to you. Why would he say that? Because he is, he is re, uh, reminding them of what occurred in their midst. Now here he does not mention the miracles that he performed in their midst. He does that in Second uh, Corinthians 12, 12, where he reminds them that he performed the signs of a true apostle with signs and wonders and miracles. So this is the seal, the spragi, the, uh, the spragos that indicated his legitimacy. Now remember, this is the apostle Paul that is talking here. Anyone. If anyone in the entire history of Christianity has the right to assert their own privilege, their own uh, position, it would be the Apostle Paul. He is arguably the most significant theologian of all of history, not just the church age, but of all of history. He had a mind that was far beyond any mind of anyone that's ever uh, lived in the church age. As a rabbinical student, Paul probably memorized the entire Old Testament in Hebrew. And we can we know that because of the training that the rabbis received at that time. He studied under Gamaliel, who was one of the most famous rabbis during that era. And he spent at least 12 years under Gamaliel's ministry. So he it is also evidenced by the way Paul uses the Old Testament and quotes it and weaves it in and out of his argument. He has masterful arguments based on Old Testament passages, and this is also evidence of how profoundly Paul had rethought his understanding of the Old Testament during the ten years he was uh, either out in the uh, desert in Arabia or he was back uh, at uh, Tarsus running his tent-making business. He had ten years when he was on the back burner before uh, the Lord, through Barnabas, called him out, and he went on his first missionary journey. So during those ten years, plus since that time another three or four years in apostolic ministry, Paul has had time to completely rethink everything he had learned in terms of the Old Testament. Now that is a that's an incredible task. This is a man who, who knows more about the Old Testament, knows more about Christianity, understands more about theology and the person and work of Christ and our position in Christ than any other living person, and yet instead of asserting his own position and his own rights, he is going to emphasize just the opposite, that he is, that he is giving up these privileges. He doesn't, didn't even mention them when he was in their midst. And so what we have is a situation where these these baby believers, many of them only saved a few months, are trying to tell Paul how he ought to run things in the church, trying to tell Paul how he ought to be uh, be conducting himself. And this is unfortunately just as common today as it was back during Paul's time. It is sad that you have such a low respect for 
uh, an apostle at that time and for pastors and teachers today uh, as you have in many, many churches. Uh, this church is just a, uh, a real beacon of light in, in contrast to the way most churches treat their pastors. In many churches, you hear pastors go on and on about how the churches need to treat their pastors simply because they're, they're treated so poorly. And many churches, it's the lay leaders in the church. They, no matter how much they know about Scripture, no matter how many years they've been believers, in some cases these are men who have taught a Sunday school class for 20 or 30 years, and yet they think they know more, and in some cases they might, but they think they know more than the pastor. And so they get a pastor, and they start running roughshod over the pastor, and you get basically these amateur theologians who think they know everything, who uh, dictate to the pastor what he's going to do, where he's going to go, what his uh, uh, policies are going to be, and how he is going to lead the congregation. And this is true in numerous congregations. That's why the average pastoral stay in this country is less than three years. Usually you have a honeymoon of about 12 months to 18 months, and then something hits the fan, and everybody gets upset about something, and somebody comes to the pastor and begins to uh, run over him, and he doesn't know how to handle it, so it's obviously God's will for me to go somewhere else, and he's gone. And what happens in these churches is that after a period of 15, 20, 30, 40 years where they've never had a pastor more than three or four years, the only thing that's permanent around here is us, so this guy's got to do what we want him to do, and we're not going to follow his leadership because why should we follow his policies? In three years, he's going to be gone. It's going to be somebody else. And this is very sad. I knew of about half a dozen churches, Bible churches, churches where there were people who ought to have known better uh, in Houston when I was there, and it was like they had a revolving door on their pulpit. And every time I met somebody in the church, I said, well, who's your pastor now? And it was because they had three or four men in that church who thought they knew more than the pastor, and they would run run the pastor and usually run him out of there as fast as they could. This is usually, there's one other thing that goes along with this, and it fits this exact passage. You get a group of people who think they know more than the pastor. They have little respect for the office or the individual who holds it. Even if it's some wet-behind-the-ear seminary student who just came out, he is still holding the office of pastor-teacher, and he is God's appointed leader for the congregation. And as such, he should be respected for that. But what happens is that, that what always goes hand-in-hand hand with a low level of respect for the authority and the leadership of the pastor-teacher is low compensation for the pastor-teacher. It is amazing, and I, I've seen in my years uh, as a pastor, since, since my years in seminary, I have seen numerous qualified, solid men men who came up under sound uh, doctrinal churches, men who uh, went through seminary, men who were good teachers, men who uh, went to their first church and they, uh, uh, they, they would, would either get run over by some board that thought they knew more than the pastor did or thought they were the real leader rather than the pastor, or they would pay him so little that after three or four years, he just couldn't survive, his family couldn't survive, and so he ended up going back into into business. I was appalled a few years ago. I was talking with a, 
a friend of mine who was uh, about to graduate from seminary, and he was wrestling with the idea that he had picked up some, some debt due to student loans, which was not that much of a problem when I was a student. I don't think anybody would loan any money to a seminary student when I was at Dallas, but apparently they had changed some policies, so there were students who were graduating with a load of debt. We're talking maybe twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars worth of of student loan debt after four years, four or five years of seminary. And so these men, who would definitely be qualified to go serve in a church, could not financially accept a church position unless they were paid eighty, seventy-five, eighty thousand dollars a year. And I was just appalled that any seminary student in his right mind would, would actually have the brass to say, well, I'm not going to go to a church unless they pay me 75000 a year. I don't know of any pastor that I, that I knew of, any seminary student that I knew of, that ever made that kind of, kind of money. That was reserved for people who had maybe 10 or 12 years' experience and were out in a church of 500 or more. But since the average church size in this nation is under 100, for men to think that they're going to, to find a congregation of 80 or 90 people that are going to pay them that kind of money, well, they're just not in the realm of reality. And in most cases, the churches don't compensate pastors that well anyway, which indicates their low esteem for the teaching of the Word of God. And see, this is exactly where Paul is going in his argument here. He is emphasizing his own position, and he is there's a, there's a level of sarcasm that's going to run through this entire section because he is subtly reminding them of the fact that they did not do anything to, to support him financially. They did not take care of him. They did not even offer to. It's not that Paul said, no, I'm not going to uh, accept any any financial remuneration for this. It's that they didn't even offer. Now, how would I know that? Well, hold your place here, and let's turn over to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. After uh, 2 Corinthians, you have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Now, Paul's second missionary journey was was the time when he came to came across the Bosphorus to Philippi and then came down the uh, Greek peninsula down to Corinth. And later when he writes his epistle to the Philippians, he says in verse 15 of chapter 4, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, that is when they first brought the gospel to Greece, when I departed from Macedonia and headed south through Thessalonica, Athens, and then uh, Corinth, he said, No church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only. That means that that, uh, the, that would include the Corinthians, that they didn't contribute a dime to his sustenance and support. So back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So there's a subtle reminder here that even as an apostle and the greatest apostle, they were so insensitive to his physical needs and his logistical support that they never even offered to give him support. And Paul, in humility, didn't remind them of that. He just went about his tent-making and relied upon the Lord to supply his need, and it was uh, actually 
it limited his ministry in Corinth because whenever you have a man who has to uh, work full time, work at some second job in order to uh, meet the financial obligations of his family, then that is going to limit his energy. It's going to limit his his study time. It's going to limit his uh, focus on that local church. He can only do so much, and if he has to work as a as a, I know of one pastor who's a vet, uh, doctor of veterinary medicine, if he has to run a vet clinic, if he has to uh, run a chiropractic clinic, if he has to uh, work as a teacher, if he has to work as a coach, if he has to work at some second job, then that's where he needs to be spending a tremendous amount of his emphasis, and that's going to limit his ability to study and teach the word and to bring that congregation to spiritual maturity. So the congregation that fails to meet the financial needs of the pastor so that he can spend all of his time studying and teaching is the, the, is the congregation that is going to hurt. They're just hurting themselves. Now Paul says in verse 2, If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And here he uses the noun spragis which is from the verb spragizo, which is uh, the word used of the sealing of the Spirit. So the word looks like this, spra, spragis, S-P-H-R-A-G-I-S, and it has to do with a seal. Sometimes it was uh, from a signet ring on, on, uh, on wax. Sometimes this word has to do with a certificate. Uh, of authentication. So that's the idea here. You are, you authenticate. You are the certificate of, authentic, of authentication for my apostolic ministry. Just look at what took place when I was there as a result of signs and wonders, but also because the, fu- the function of an apostle was to uh, witness through evangelism, to establish a congregation in an area where there there wasn't, and to be a witness to the to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of which took place in Corinth. They had firsthand experience with his leadership, with his teaching, with his authority, and with the empirical signs of an apostle. And then in verse three, he says, "My defense to those who examine me is this." Now, that's not exactly how it reads in the Greek. In the Greek, the word order is reversed. It should actually read, this is my defense to those who examine me. Well, the first question we have to answer is, what does the this refer to? Does the this refer back to the seal of his apostleship in verse 2? The questions of verse 1 and 2 actually, specifically leading up to the seal of his apostleship. Or does the this refer to what follows? The interesting thing is, when you consult the various commentators and Greek students, it goes in either direction. They're about evenly split. About half of them think that it refers to what goes before, and the other half think that it refers to what comes after. It is not clear from the syntax or the grammar uh, whether it goes to the refers to what happens previously or what happens afterwards. I think it is what goes before that he has just made a statement, and he says, this is my defense. In other words, you are my defense. Now, what does he mean by defense? This is the Greek word apologia, from which we get both our English words apology, 
which means to admit you're wrong, and apologetics, which it does not mean to apologize. It means to give a legal defense or a legal answer for uh, your position. There was a technical legal concept, and, and an uh, apologia is what the defense attorney would give in order to prove the innocence of his client. It was an answer to the charge. So this metaphor, Paul uses a legal metaphor here to bring into this discussion. He says, this is my my defense. What was his defense? His defense was, his answer to their charge was what he had just said, but it is the basis for what he will say in verse 4 and following. This is why I think there's a certain amount of of uh, obscurity here as to what the, this refers to because it includes the previous, but the previous two statements, two verses, are the foundation for the following verses. So, in a sense, it applies to both. This is my defense, and then he uses another uh, technical legal term as a metaphor here, a word that is used several times in uh, Corinthians, but not anywhere else, and that is the Greek verb anakrino. It's a participle form here uh, used with an article. Those who uh, anakrino me, those who wish to investigate me, those who wish to scrutinize me, those who wish to examine me. So this is my defense to those who wish to examine me, what he says in the first two verses, and then he is going to build on that. And he answers their uh, objection Remember their objections. Why should we give up our legitimate rights for some weak, wimpy believer who just doesn't know any better and hadn't learned any better? He says, uh, do we, that is, and the we here is more of an, uh, an authorial we. He says, do we have no right to eat and drink? And the implication from the way he structures it in the Greek is, yes, we do have a right to eat and drink. And the word translated right is the Greek word exousia, which means authority, rights, or entitlements. That's translated this way. Don't we have an, aren't we entitled as apostles to eat and drink? Now, the eating and drinking of verse 4 is not to be identified with the eating of meat sacrificed to idols, which is the general subject. The term "eat and drink" is a uh, is an is a phrase, a an idiom, what is called a merism, which talks about two different things and puts them together as an all inclusive uh, all inclusive subject. For example, in uh, in Matthew twenty four thirty eight, when Jesus is talking about the in times when he's going to come back, he says it's going to be just like the days of Noah when they were marrying and giving in marriage and when they were eating and drinking. In other words, it describes the ongoing process, normal process of life. So Paul here says that that as, as apostles, they had the right, they were entitled to eat and drink. And the idea here is that the apostle has the right to live off the ministry and to be supported in a gracious manner. In other words, that we would apply that today to the pastor-teacher, that the pastor-teacher is entitled to logistical support, to eat, to live, to have his life's necessities taken care of by his congregation, by, uh, by the flock he feeds. 
This is his his uh, entitlement. The church should take care of uh, all of the uh, obligations of a pastor so he is not distracted by the details of life. 1 Corinthians 9.5, he adds to this. He says, do we not... Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas? Now, isn't this an interesting little insight here? It looks like the Holy Spirit decided to slip Peter's name in here, Cephas, in order to head off what became what's become a major problem in, in the Roman Catholic Church. He says, don't we have a right to take along a believing wife? Now, literally, this it's an interesting uh, structure here in the Greek. He doesn't use the word uh, pistos or pistois for believing. He uses the word adelphane, sister. So he, he, he introduces it this way. He says, don't we take along a sister, and then he, in apposition, you have the noun uh Gunaika, or that's G-U-N-A-I-K-A from Gune, meaning woman or wife. So it is, it is the combination of these two terms, and the term sister would refer to a believer, someone else in the body of Christ. It's the the uh, connection of these two words together that indicate that he is talking about a wife. The reason I say that is because there have been some some interesting exegetical gymnastics done in order to, to try to uh, document the idea that that uh, the apostles weren't weren't married or that Peter wasn't married. Some have tried to make this mean a female assistant or secretary. However, the fact that you have uh, the word gunai associated with this would uh, would argue against that. If you were just talking about a, taking along a, a woman as an assistant, then you would just talk. Of, you would just say take along a sister. But when you combine it with gune, it indicates a wife. That this is a wife. Now there have been problems in the church with asceticism, and the church hasn't been able to handle. Uh, sex from a very early period, and Clement of Alexandria, who was a bishop of, of uh, Alexandria, North Egypt, about the end of the second century and beginning of the, or, or excuse me, more like the middle of the third century, thought that what this meant was that an apostle could be accompanied by his wife, but of course he would treat her as a sister in the sense that they would not enjoy marital intimacy. And all of this is a result of the Neoplatonism that influenced the early church. That somehow sex, because it was associated with the physical body and and material flesh, was uh, inherently evil, and pastors would live above that. But that's not true, if you didn't know that. The idea that Paul is saying here is that we have a right. Now, Paul had not availed himself of that right. He was single and remained single the rest of his life. He said, but we do have a right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles. Apparently, all of the other apostles took their wives along with him. Now, the implication here is that the church had a responsibility, the churches had a responsibility to support 
the pastor and his wife, the apostle and his wife, when they came, it was the responsibility of the church to provide enough financial support to take care of the apostle's whole family so that they would not have to work outside the home. Now, that is an interesting implication here, uh, which I'll pick up in just a minute. He also refers to the brothers of the Lord as a separate group. Now, this also raises an interesting problem with relation to the uh, Roman Catholic Church. The uh, brothers of the Lord are mentioned in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, as well as in Matthew 13:56. They're listed as James and Joseph, Judas, and Simon. They're, they're also referred to as uh, the fact that Jesus has brothers is also mentioned in Galatians 1:19, John 2:12, and John 7. Now, the early church understood these as his half-brothers. They're half-brothers because Joseph was not his, the father of his humanity. Because of the virgin conception and virgin birth, Jesus had no full brothers. But because they were the product of the union of Joseph and Mary, they are, in terms of his humanity, half-brothers. The early church understood that, but by the end of the second century, because of the same influence of Neoplatonism, and they just couldn't handle the fact that Mary might have continued to have a sexual relationship in marriage with her husband, uh, they came forth. They they came up with the idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary. This was first set forth in a pseudepigraphal work. Pseudepigrapha means a false writing. It's not a. They laid some claim to. Uh, Scripture, but was never accepted as such. A pseudepigraphal book called the Proto-Evangelium or the Proto-Evangelium of James. And so, after that point, when you have this first uh, mention of the perpetual virginity of Mary, there is this case made that this really means kinsman. That brother doesn't mean physical brother or half brother. It means just a kinsman. And so, you'll find. Uh, in the Roman Catholic argument that this means cousin. Now, this has surfaced recently. If you're not aware of this, there was a, an ossuary. An ossuary is like a, a stone casket where you would put the bones of a, of a body. And there's a, an ossuary was found recently in Jerusalem or in, in, uh, in Israel. And the inscription on this ossuary was James, the brother of Jesus. Now, what makes this unusual is normally on an ossuary, you would have a genealogical statement. You would have the statement, James, the son of Joseph. It would have, be, have a statement related to parentage. The fact that this says James, the brother of Jesus, uh, certainly raised uh, the possibility that this might be the, uh, the ossuary that contained the remains of James, the actual brother of Jesus. And all everything that, that can be done to test this archaeologically has been done, and there is no reason why this can't be what it appears to be, and that is the actual ossuary that contains the contained the remains of James, the physical brother or half-brother uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why it, it phrases it in that particular way. And, of course, this is a very early witness to the existence of Jesus and is a sort of a secondary authentication of evidence that we have in the Scriptures. But there's no way you can prove it 100%. But uh, uh, my good friend Randy Price, who is much more qualified 
as a biblical archaeologist than I am and has written several books on this. In fact, led it, had led a dig, headed up his own archaeological dig at the um, down in the uh, area of the Dead Sea this last uh, August and September, gave a report on this at the pre-trib uh, rapture study group this last December and said that as far as any indications are, it's probably the, is, we could probably say it is the remains of, uh, this, this is what he claims to be, the, the ossuary of James. However, you can't be dogmatic about it. You can't be certain because there's uh, just isn't enough data to, uh, to make a, an absolute 100% airtight case. But, of course, what has surfaced in this is this old argument, again, that brother doesn't mean brother. It really means kinsman. And that's not true. These were the brothers of the Lord, and they were not saved until after the resurrection. And Cephas, of course, is Peter. Peter took along a wife. The brothers of the Lord were all married, and they all took their wives with them. Now, the point is, in terms of application, is that the pastor was entitled to have a wife, but also that the church should support the pastor and his wife together. Now, I'm going to close out when we get there with some practical application in terms of how to determine things such as salary and financial support and things of that nature. This is not saying that a pastor's wife should not work. It is saying that a church's responsibility, if they can, is to support the pastor and his wife in such a way that that uh, the pastor's wife does not have to work and does not need to work. And the sad thing is that in so many doctrinal churches, the churches are so small that the pastors uh, are not supported well enough where their wives do not have to work. I can name a dozen, and you know many of them, a dozen or more pastors whose wives have to work. And in fact, if these men... If it weren't for their wives, and their wives are going to get some tremendous rewards for this, if their wives weren't working, these men would not have ministries. And one of these men is George Meisinger, who's the president of of Chafer Seminary. And his wife has worked for years, runs a daycare center. And if it weren't for her consistency in that area, um, George would not be able to do the things that George does. And I could name a half a dozen other men and that is just because uh, it's a shame that how poorly uh, some churches support their pastors. Now, this church is to be praised, and, and we have uh, we, you, you all do a wonderful job. I'm not uh, applying this at all to, to our situation. But there are churches. I know of one pastor out on the West Coast who emailed me not long ago asking me several questions about how... I was remunerated how we did things here. He's been at this church for 20 or 25 years, and he can't get the church behind him financially. And it's about the size of this church, and that is a tragedy. You see, how people handle their money and how they support their pastor says everything about how they understand grace. And the sad thing is, in too many doctrinal churches... People have gotten the idea that grace means I don't really need to give. Somebody else can do it. And so they don't. It does, if, if the Word of God doesn't impact your pocketbook, then you haven't understood grace yet. Grace doesn't mean, grace means you, there's no legislated amount to give that gives you, that is the basis for blessing from God. 
Grace means that just as God freely gave to us, we are to freely give back to him. And the principle that governs giving is generosity, and it's not mandated, it's not imposed, it's not because we have to, but it is a gracious response in gratitude to all that God has done for us. And the sad thing is, is that if your gratitude doesn't impact your giving, and that's not manifested in the way you treat your pastor, then something is terribly wrong. And that was the case in Corinth, and that's the case in in too many churches today. So Paul says that, Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas, which is Peter's Aramaic name? So they all took along a wife, and they and their wives, their families, were financially supported by the church. And then in verse 6 he says, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Now he brings in Barnabas because if you remember from Acts, Barnabas was from uh, Cyprus, and, or Cyprus, and he, had, he apparently was fairly wealthy, and he sold his possessions and gave, sold off a bunch of land and gave the proceeds to the church. So apparently Barnabas was a self-supporting missionary, and there are some pastors and some missionaries like that who have been able to make money either through investments or through inheritance, but they have decided to be self-supporting. Now, Paul isn't saying you should be, but he is saying that is an option that some pastors can choose. And this is especially true in the area of church planting. When you're starting a new church and you have a young church, a small group of people, if the pastor has the ability to work and support himself uh, without putting that additional obligation on the, on the church, he should do so. I know of some cases, in fact, my, my uh, pre- previous church I pastored, had taken on the full financial responsibility of a pastor when they shouldn't have. And because they made that decision, it limited how much money they could spend on property or getting a some kind of permanent facility or paying a lease, and that really hamstrung the congregation through the, and was a problem we had through the, my entire ministry. And I think there's a time to, when pastors, if they can, should choose not to take a salary until the church gets large enough to be able to support them. But once again... That is a temporary situation, and that it should be up to the individual pastor and is not something that should be imposed on him. Now, as examples, Paul gives three examples, uh, three illustrations in verse 7. He, says, he takes one from the soldier, one from the owner of a vineyard, and one example from a shepherd. Now, it's interesting how he chooses these illustrations because they're taken from three different segments of society. The first one is the soldier. The soldier represents the person on a fixed income where his salary is paid regularly by an employer. Whoever goes to war at his own expense. In other words, a soldier doesn't support himself. He's paid by the government. He is paid by someone else. Second example has to do with the, the we would call it the capitalist entrepreneur. This is the vineyard owner. Now, it takes time for, once you plant your, your, uh, your vines. It takes time for them to mature two or three years before you ever see any, uh, any, any mature plants and, and fruit and can start producing wine or grape juice. So this is the capitalist who works for himself, puts his capital to work in a long-term investment in the land, and it, of course, is at risk. 
And then the third category is the shepherd. Now, in the Greek culture at this time, the shepherd was usually a slave. So he says, who, uh, who, or who tends a flock and doesn't drink of the milk of the flock? In any area of life, he says, you have the right to benefit and to live off of the fruit of your labor. That's the thrust of his argument. Then in verse 8 he says, Do I say these things as a mere man? Is this just human convention? He says, No, I can back it up from exegesis of the Mosaic law also. So he quotes Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, and uh, verse 9. He says, For it's written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. In other words, don't put a distraction on the ox, if he's hungry, let him eat from what he is, from the work that he's producing as he is treading out the grain. This is not a law that in and of itself is a concern for the well-being of animals, but it indicates a, the, an emphasis on the well-being of the animal so that it can more efficiently carry out its task, more efficiently carry out its work. Unfortunately, there are too many churches who treat their pastors poorly and treat their staffs poorly in terms of financial compensation. I've heard grace as an excuse. Well, they're serving the Lord. Well, does that mean they should do without just because they're a missionary, just because they're a pastor, just because they work for a church that they, that they should live at a lower standard of, of uh, living than everybody else in the congregation? That is absurd. That is nothing more than, than arrogance. I've also heard this from Christian organizations. Well, we don't pay them uh, as much as they could make out in the secular marketplace, but after all, it's such a privilege to work for our ministry. And I've heard that from, from some seminaries and from some churches and different ministries. Well, they, they, it's their privilege to work for us. That is nothing more than arrogance. Any ministry, any church should pay their staff at least what they would get in an equivalent position in secular society, if not more, because the principle is generosity and grace, so that if you have a secretary that you hire full-time for the church and the going salary for a secretary is, is a certain amount, that, uh, that she ought to be paid that or a little bit more. Now, of course, there's always mitigating circumstances. If you've got a small church or you're in a startup position, then uh, just as a startup job or startup business is not going to be able to pay the same thing that a large business would be able to pay. But I've known some large Christian ministries whose salaries are absolutely embarrassing because they expect people just to, to somehow live off the privilege of working for that particular particular ministry, and that shows that when it comes to money, once again, people just don't understand grace. Now, in verse 10, Paul says, uh, or does he say this for our sakes? He says, no doubt this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. In other words, you should benefit from your own work, and he goes on to apply this in verse 11. We'll come back next time. We're out of time. We'll come back next time in verse 11, and then we will conclude also next time with some practical guidelines on uh, setting pastoral salary, setting staff pay, things of that nature, things that should be taken into consideration with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. 
Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by what what we have here, to be challenged by the fact that the generosity should characterize how we all handle our money, how we handle our finances, especially in relationship to those who are serving serving you, whether it's missionaries or pastors or evangelists, whatever their task may be, or maybe their support staff in various ministries, they all deserve to be treated and compensated well. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, we pray that you would make that clear to them, that salvation is based on grace. It is your generosity to us that provided your son to go to the cross and die as our substitute to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross that we might have eternal life. It's not based on who we are, what we've done. It's not based on our uh, our, our morality. It's not based on our goodness. It's based on his complete and total work on the cross so that salvation is a free gift, no strings attached. All we have to do is accept it. All that needs to be done is to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you will have eternal life. Father, we thank you for what we have studied today and we pray that you would challenge us with these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.